May it please the court, counsel. My name is Eric Cooperstein, and I represent the respondent this morning in this appeal of an admonition issued by the director of the Office of Lawyers Professional Responsibility. Uh, the facts in this matter are um, rather straightforward. I'll just highlight the most significant facts from our point of view. Uh, the lawyer's underlying client in this case had a contract for deed. He had a dispute with the uh, person who was selling him a property on a contract for deed. Uh, he filed a pro se lawsuit in district court to try to resolve his dispute. He found himself someone un unsuccessful. The seller on the contract for deed hired a lawyer. The lawyer filed uh, a, a summary judgment motion in district court. Ironically, for purposes of this case, the lawyer filed the summary judgment motion with only five days notice, five or six days notice of when the motion was scheduled for a hearing. The uh, purchaser, the lawyer's client, came to him and hired the lawyer to represent when him. When you say in that ironically, motion. you're saying that violated the uh, general rules of practice? I'm saying it's ironic, Your Honor, because uh, respondent is being disciplined for violating the rule, but we have no indication from the record or from the director's office that the other lawyer had violated the rule as well. It seems on, on its face, did that five-day notice violate a general rule? The director drops a footnote in the admonition saying um, they don't know how it could have been scheduled that way. But the director does not say specifically whether it violated the rule or not. It is, it's a case, Your Honor, of what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. So um, the complainant hires the lawyer, they sign a retainer agreement. The fee for the, re for the representation is intended to be an advance payment of $8,500 to be placed in trust and billed hourly. The client makes uh, an initial $1,000 payment in two installments on the retainer is, and is supposed to pay the remainder of the retainer, the $7,500, within a short time after paying the $1,000. He does not pay the remainder. Um, the lawyer goes ahead and contacts uh, the court and opposing counsel and says, uh, we'd like to reschedule this motion. Opposing counsel apparently has no objection. They reschedule the motion for the, the motion hearing for a later date. The lawyer reminds the client, uh, respondent reminds the complainant that the fee has not been paid. And the client does not um, respond with payment. The lawyer twice more reminds the client that you have not paid your retainer and we are not gonna go forward with this motion hearing unless you pay the retainer. On October 9th, the third time that the lawyer told the client in writing that uh, if he did not pay the retainer, they were gonna drop, they, they could not represent him. He sends the, the client an email and says, we're going to close your file because you haven't paid the retainer. Um, the client responds later that evening, about a half hour later, and says something to do with settlement negotiations, but doesn't respond to the lawyer's statement that he intends to close the file. That following Monday morning, they have an additional exchange, and the lawyer and the client agree by email that the lawyer is going to continue to negotiate uh, the dispute with the other side to see if they could resolve it, but that the lawyer is not gonna file any papers with the court. And the client responds, I understand. Um, the negotiations fall through. Uh, then the client does come up with some money after the deadline has passed for filing the response to the summary judgment motion. The client comes up with a total of $4,000. And respondent says, all right, we'll put, the, we'll put the motion papers in. I can't guarantee that the court is going to accept them. So the lawyer has his associate draft the responsive memorandum. They get it done in one day. They file it with the court. Um, another lawyer for the firm appears in court at the motion hearing uh, there is a combination of the defense and the plaintiff then deciding to withdraw his uh, summary judgment motion and perhaps refile it later. Uh, and the court 
issues an order saying the motion is dismissed. Council, am I consent. correct as I read this record that there is not a shred of evidence anywhere that the district court ever found that there was an untimely filing or that there was any um, failure on the part of the lawyer to act uh, in accordance with the rules? Your Honor, my memory is that the court references in its order that the motion, that the papers were filed late. And that, I believe, is the only reference. But didn't the court also say like they were, they were accepting them within the court's discretion? And there wasn't an objection by the other by the other side. There, there certainly, there's certainly no evidence in the record that there was any objection by the other side. I believe there may be words to the effect of the court has, has either accepted them or there's some tacit approval of the fact that the papers have been filed late. I'm accepting. I'm, I'm, I, the, the court clearly, in the order, is taking the mo has taken the motion under consideration and has issued an order based on everything. But, but my that was but submitted. my point is, there's no motion by the other side saying these papers are untimely. They shouldn't be accepted. There's no sanction imposed by the court. I mean, there may be a reference somewhere to the fact, I mean, to the dates of filing, which are not disputed, as I understand it. Um, but, but there's no evidence of any, anybody taking any action alleging that um, there was uh, wrongful conduct on the part of the lawyer here. It does not appear, Your Honor, that anyone was unhappy about the fact that the papers had been filed late. In fact, counsel, wouldn't you agree that this is not an uncommon occurrence, that there are many, many cases ranging across the... I don't know what the word is, but you know what I mean. Panoply. Yes, that that where lawyers file papers late just because of a multitude of reasons. It's not an unusual uh, occurrence. Right. Well, yeah, respondent testified as to that specific point that in his experience, and he's a lawyer with at this time, I suppose, about set, about nine years experience, that this happens fairly routinely. It just happened to him the, the week before, not him personally, but his opposing counsel had filed something late. And um, as we might hope that when this happens, uh, Good and diligent lawyers talk to each other about the fact that motion papers are being filed late, um, and they adjust accordingly. And not everything turns into a motion to um, deny the claim. And one, I think, one of the things that's important about that, and is important for the court's consideration of this case, is that um, I, I think also good lawyers know that if you make the technical argument, oh, these papers shouldn't be considered. Well, then there's a likelihood that the other party is going to come back later with a motion to vacate or a motion to reconsider and make more work for the court than if the papers had just been considered in the first place. So I assume that as a district court judge, that all has to be factored, that has to be taken into account in deciding whether the papers are late. Has the party been chronically late? Is someone going to be prejudiced? Is there time? Does the party not only submit the papers late, but submit a mountain, you know, a 30-page brief? plus 500 pages worth of exhibits that makes it makes it even more difficult for either the court or the opposing party to actually read the papers. So there is an indication in the record that in, in, in the response experience, this happens, he said it happens in a minority of cases, but, but with some regularity that lawyers do file papers late um, and it doesn't cause a problem. Um, so the court issues, issues its order. Um, the firm continues to represent um, the client in various matters. Uh, that just, I, I don't recall actually how that particular dispute was involved. The firm handled multiple matters for that same client. Um, eventually the representation ended, I believe, because the client wouldn't pay his fees and there was a lawsuit between the, the law firm and the client for the fees and then the file, client filed his complaint. The director issued an admonition, a private admonition for violations, well, violations of rule 3.4C and 8.4D um, 
We appealed to a panel of the Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board. The Lawyers Board panel dismissed the 8.4D violation and upheld the 3.4C violation that the lawyer had knowingly disobeyed in the language of Rule 3.4C, had knowingly disobeyed an obligation under the rules of the tribunal, either by not filing the memorandum by the deadline or by filing it late. It's not completely clear, either from the director's admonition or from the panel's determination, when it is the violation occurred. In other words, it's not clear whether on the day the motion papers were due and were not filed, that's when respondent allegedly violated the rule, or was it when the lawyer actually filed the papers late, whether that was the point at which, by filing the papers somehow, that became a violation of the rule. The panel has not been clear. We believe that the panel's determination that the lawyer's conduct violated Rule 3.4C was clearly erroneous. Counsel, would it be a violation of General Rules of Practice 115.03 sub B when you're representing a client who's got a summary judgment motion against the client just not to file anything and just show up for oral argument and make arguments based on the papers filed by the moving party? Your Honor, I think that's a choice that the lawyer and client can make together. There may be some motions that lawyers and clients decide to default on. I don't know that deciding to default on a motion violates any rule. It's a question of what's interesting about— The reason I'm asking, I'm wondering if under 3.4 it is a violation of your obligation that if you just don't file something, you're violating your obligation pursuant to a court rule. Right, and I don't know of any cases that say that. I don't know of any—certainly I don't know of any discipline cases that have said that deciding to default, as opposed to inadvertently defaulting, but deciding to default on a motion for whatever reason. It could be a strategic decision by the lawyer and client. It could be that the lawyer's client isn't cooperating. The lawyer can't get an answer out of the client and can't get approval. Or the client still would rather spend the money on settlement efforts rather than filing an opposition. Right, that's right. It could be on the facts of this case that you can't get— It's possible a lawyer could have done everything the lawyer possibly could have done, could have the motion ready, the affidavit accompanying the memorandum is ready to be signed, but the client disappears on the lawyer. The lawyer may not actually know what to do about whether to file or not. Who knows whether—I mean, if something had happened to the client, we would expect the lawyer under some circumstances to contact the court and opposing counsel and say something about the fact that they're filing the motion late if they have permission from the client to do so. I think part of the question, though, is if you don't file the response brief, you're not even necessarily defaulting. You can still show up at the hearing and argue the law and the facts, like on a summary judgment motion. Is there any obligation to actually file a response brief? There could be a diligence argument under Rule 1, but is there actually a—are you actually violating a law by not—or a rule by not filing a brief? Well, Your Honor, Rule 115 says in several places the parties shall file the various papers that are referred to in the rule. But on the other hand— It says they shall file by, which is different than saying they shall file, right? Yes. The parts of the rule that I'm remembering, Your Honor, are the parts where it sets out what portions of the rule, you know, what has to be submitted. And then the deadline 
kind of stated in a separate subpart, I believe. Um, but my, the point I was making was that although the rule says shall in one place, then in 115.06, it says that if the papers aren't considered, the court may cancel the hearing. There's actually, we didn't write about this in our brief, there's actually two places within 115 that are discretionary on the part of the court, 115.06 and 115.07. So I, I, my answer to you is that it's not 100% clear whether um, defaulting on a motion is itself a violation of, of the rules. I think that um, practicing lawyers would be surprised to hear that if they or their client choose not to file, that they're somehow violating, that they could be sanctioned for that, and plus that they could be violating a rule of professional conduct at the, at the, at the same time. Um, and all of this touches on the question of where the obligation runs on a filing deadline. Uh, the rule 115 also talks about the fact that the party has the obligation to file. Now, in many, many cases, the, um, the obligations of the lawyer and the client are going to be overlapping. What's unusual about this case is that respondent hadn't filed a notice of appearance. Um, the record isn't completely clear as to, as to how that happened. It, I, one could, could infer, I think, that it's wrapped up in the idea that, well, we rescheduled the motion, but he hasn't paid the fee yet, so before we pay, put in a, a notice of appearance, uh, we'd like to have our fee paid, because then once we're in, then we gotta ask permission to get out. But there is no certificate of representation filed in this case, um, which raises a question is whose obligation it was to file the motion papers on time. Even if respondent had withdrawn, uh, his client still could have, either on his own, he had showed some ability to file papers pro se and motions pro se before, on his own or by hiring a new lawyer, could have still complied. So it's not completely clear how the obligation runs directly to respondent in, in this particular case. Um, the, and what's also interesting um, about the obligation and how it interplays with Rule 3.4c is that the cases, as I was taking a look at this in our brief last night, um, the cases we cited of violations of Rule 3.4c, particularly the private admonitions, all turn on obligations that were particular to the lawyer. Failure to pay child support obligations, failure to disperse funds the lawyer was held, holding in trust, um, giving false information to a grand jury, uh, improper criminal trial conduct, mishandling medical records of sexual abuse victims. All of those five admonitions that are reported all had to do with obligations that were particularly on the lawyer to take some action and the lawyer failed to take that action. Um, this case is much different in that regard. There is an obligation on someone's part if they're gonna participate in the motion to file the motion papers, but it's not clear that the obligation ran specifically to respondent. The, um, the issue of the obligation, of course, is also interesting as we look at the, the words of Rule 3.4c because um, it seems to us that respondent clearly limited his representation and he had agreement with his client. Um, this is what you want. Okay, you don't wanna spend money on a lawyer. Now all you wanna do is negotiate. Fine, we'll negotiate for you. We're not gonna file anything, anything for you. Do you understand? I understand. The email that came back from the client was not, well, what does this mean for me? Or, well, will you be able to file it later? No, the email from the client was clearly, I understand, um, not raising any questions about the course of action. It's um, somewhat ironic to us, the director suggested at 
in closing argument at the hearing and suggest also in the brief um, that a lawyer could withdraw from representing the client, and that would be okay, but um, if the lawyer wants to limit the representation to a smaller piece, um, there's a higher burden of informed consent. So I can leave, I can abandon you if you wanna call it that, I can say you won't pay my fee, I'm done here, but if I wanna help you a little bit more, if I'm willing to stay in this with you for as much as I can tolerate given that my fees aren't being paid, um, somehow that requires a high, that, that places a higher burden on the lawyer to obtain informed consent. It's, a, it's an odd quirk between the interplay of Rule 1.2 on limiting the scope of representation and uh, Rule 1.16 on withdrawing from the representation. Well, I'm kind of wondering about this um, agreement between the lawyer and the client that the effort would be on settlement rather than responding to the motion. Let's say the lawyer and the client had agreed to that and then the lawyer goes ahead and incurs fees to do a response anyway. The case ends up getting settled. The response is not needed then. Um, then it seems to me the lawyer might be in some trouble under Rule 1.2 for exceeding the scope of the representation authorized by the client. Looks to me like your client may have been between a rock and a hard place here. Well, so the, so the lawyer in that position, so, so let's say the lawyer's thinking, all right, he's saying now, just outside this record, just on hypothetically, the lawyer says, okay, well, he only wants me um, to negotiate, but I can see this is going nowhere. I can see this is not actually going to settle. And so I'm gonna draft the motion anyway, and I'm gonna spend eight hours of time drafting the memorandum, and I'm gonna have it in my pocket anyway just in case, and then lo and behold, it does settle. I think what you have there is a question of whether the lawyer can reasonably charge the client for the work in drafting those documents. I'm not sure, the, I mean, if the lawyer drafts the papers and doesn't file them, I don't know that the lawyer has exceeded the scope. I, if, I have a practical question, uh, Mr. Cooperstein. Um, <clears throat> If we agree with the position taken by the OLPR here, does that mean, is there some obligation on the part of the district court or other lawyers every time there's a late filing, a day or two, a few hours, whatever, every time there's a late filing, is there an obligation to report that to the um, uh, Office of Lawyers Professional Responsibility? I mean, it's a rule violation, Rule 3.4C, according to the OLPR, says that uh, you've committed an ethical violation does that carry with it a reporting obligation as well? I sure hope not, Your Honor. Well, I, um, but but the I analysis mean, the, the, is that a logical is that a is that potentially no. a logical implication? No, Your Honor, it wouldn't be because um, the the rule on reporting misconduct is Rule 8.3, and Rule 8.3 talks about reporting misconduct when it raises a substantial question as to the lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness to practice in other respects, and. Um, as a shorthand, most of us who do this type of work believe that 8.3 is invoked when the likely outcome, if, if the facts were true, when the likely outcome of discipline case would be public discipline at least and perhaps even a suspension. So something like this where it's a late filing where we, we actually could all agree that if there is gonna be a violation, it's only gonna be a private admonition, would not trigger a reporting duty. Um, if they do it would. twice or three times or there's a pattern, we, we're, now we're in reporting territory. Yeah, could be. It, yeah. It, it could be. But the idea that every time that it would have to be reported um, is not accurate. Sometimes judges report instead of issuing sanctions. And I think there is one of the cases we cited where a judge reported to the director's office instead of actually issuing monetary sanctions in a case. And that's an option. But 
one of the points we tried to raise in our brief is that all these options should lay with the district court, right? That's the way the rule is, is structured. The discretion is with the district, district court to A, run the judge's courtroom and run the cases and determine what is appropriate um, in each particular case. I can remember working on a case where there was a, a housing court referee and I read the transcript and the housing court referee was explaining to someone who wanted the case to be defaulted because the tenant had failed to show up was showing up 15 minutes late for trials. 15 minutes in, give me a default. And the referee was like, well, no, what's gonna happen then is that person's gonna go out and get a lawyer and bring a motion to vacate, and I'm probably gonna have to grant it. And so it's, it's a question in part of managing the lawyer's courtroom. Um, I suppose in part it's when a, when a judge manages uh, their, their courtroom, they also don't wanna allow sniping by lawyers back and forth, so sometimes allowing a motion to be filed one or two days late is important to the overall management of the case. The discretion rests under the rule with the district court judge, um, and so and for the director's office to come in after the fact and say, well, it doesn't matter whether or not the district court judge decided this was wrong, we're, you know, we're actually gonna, we're gonna Uber manage what goes on in district court by saying, well, if we see something that's late, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna discipline someone. And the fact that the Court of Appeals and, the, and this court have said that, there are, that it's appropriate under some circumstances to allow memoranda and all their motion papers to be filed past the filing deadline uh, is okay. Doesn't matter for the, for the discipline system. Counsel, what's your best argument, assuming that your client did have an obligation to file a brief on October 17, what's your best argument that your client didn't knowingly disobey that obligation? Well, Your Honor, the, the use in the, this, this, rule, this rule is something of an odd rule in that there's very little commentary on it. There's no actual comments to the rules about it. Um, there I'm, are just reading, I'm just reading it in its plain language. As, it says, as knowing, we, knowingly disobey an obligation. We read knowingly disobey as being something um, intentional, something willful. The, the word knowing or knowingly appears throughout the rules, but not anywhere else does it have a combination of words that suggests um, two things, both knowing and disobeying. Uh, we read, read the word disobeying as, 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 as thumbing one's nose at something, as saying, no, I'm not gonna do this, I, ref I refuse to do this. Um, and so the combination of knowing and disobey would mean, I, I know I have to do this, and I'm simply, I'm simply not going to do it. I make my, I make my own rules, which is the problem with, with, with some other respondents. Um, I think the, the plain meaning of those words is that it's something more than just yes, I'm aware of the deadline, I'm aware I have a client, um, but you know we're, we're not, we're, we're not going to file. There are so many situations where a lawyer might not be able to file on a deadline that to call every instance of not filing by a motion deadline a knowing, you know, knowingly disobeying uh, the rule of the tribunal seems extreme and it seems likely to go down a path um, that is not good for the public and it's not good for the bar. We raised several of these types of issues in our brief. One is, so if that type of um, non-jurisdictional error is gonna result in a, is knowingly disobeying. Um, does the same thing apply to, I, and I don't wanna to be too hyperbolic, but to things like the font you use in a brief where there's a font requirement, the type size, how many words there are in a brief. Are those, if, if, if you go over the word count on a brief by 500 words, is that knowingly disobeying the rules of, of a tribunal? And who gets to decide whether it is or not? Does the court get to decide or does the court get to say, well, 
that's my threshold. My thre it's 500 words is within our, within our threshold. Does the director's office get to go back later and count the words and say you knowingly disobeyed because you have a computer and you could count the words yourself? There's also a problem in the attorney-client relationship. So client comes to you. This case was a pre-existing client, but client comes to you and the client comes to you eight days instead of nine before the summary judgment motion is due. Under, the, under this admonition, if this, is, if this is what the law is, the lawyer has to say to the client, well, I'm sorry, I can't file your brief late because I could get in trouble for that. I can't do it. You could do it. You can do it on your own. I can't do it. I, I can't help you. But what I can do is after the order comes out and you lose, maybe we can look at bringing a motion to vacate or a motion to reconsider and explaining to the court all the circumstances that led to you not being able to get counsel um, in time to submit your motion papers. Or perhaps the lawyer could say, I can't file, but I can help you file. So I will ghostwrite a brief for you, and you can submit the ghostwritten brief, and then I'll show up with you in court on the day of the hearing and argue the brief, because you will have satisfied your obligation to file the papers, and then I'll help you out when, you, when we get there, and I'll just and I'll argue the case for you. And so, uh, it just seems an unnecessarily contorted reading of the rules. Thank you, I see my time Th is up. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Ms. Frank. May it please the court, counsel. I'm Nicole Frank, appearing on behalf of the Director of the Office of Lawyers' Professional Responsibility. This case presents the court with an opportunity to remind the bar of the clarity and simplicity of Rule 3.4c, Minnesota Rules of Professional Conduct. The Lawyers' Professional Responsibility Board panel did not clearly err when it determined that there was a violation of Rule 3.4c and in affirming the admonition. In this instance, Rule 3.4c works in tandem with Rule 115.03b, Minnesota General Rules of Practice. There is ample evidence in the way of testimony by respondent that he knew without question the deadline of the response to a dispositive motion and he was untimely in his filing of that response. So any untimely motion, <clears throat> any untimely filing under any, under any circumstances and at any time is a violation of this rule? That's incorrect, Your Honor. The rule requires a knowing disobedience and mistakes do happen. Not every untimely filing would result in a violation of the rule. Here we have very specific facts that support it. So what would not be a knowing violation? Like I mean, of Rule 115, I mean, it's pretty clear in the, in the rule under your interpretation that it's nine days. So what would be a not, not knowing violation? For instance, if the attorney were trying to comply with timely filing and perhaps the server was down or there was some other error that prevented timely filing. Most of these violations occur in the context of it just didn't get done for some reason. Um, who knows what the reason is. But even if I accept your judgment that it's a knowing violation that's required by the rule, I shouldn't say your judgment, that's what the rule says. But even if we include the knowing violation, 
Um, I think where that leaves us is absent unusual circumstances, um, any violation of those time limits, of any of the time limits, um, is thus a violation of the professional responsibility rule. I would not go so far as to say that, Your Honor. In this case, respondent testified that the reason he did not file by the deadline, and there's, there's a lot of statements in the record about October 17th, that was a Saturday. The deadline fell to the 16th, the Friday. He knew when that deadline came, he had not been paid the remainder of the retainer. It wasn't that he didn't know. It wasn't that he forgot. It wasn't for reason of mistake. He had not been paid the retainer. There's also testimony by complainant, the client, that the client in stating in the email, that's exhibit 10, I understand. He testified about what he meant as to his understanding. And he understood that respondent as he wished, would attempt to settle, but that if settlement negotiations were unsuccessful, they would revisit the issue of the motion. There's also testimony as to the timing of the supplemental payments. And the client paid on the 16th, the deadline for a timely opposition, he paid 1,800 of the additional 4,000. So you would expect the lawyer to file, to have written and filed his brief in less than one day? There, I expect the attorney to comply with the rule but, in this and, case. And complying in this case under the last fact statement you said, if the, I think the payment came in about 11 o'clock. So in that case, you would have expected the lawyer then to file, a, I think he filed about eight to 12 page memorandum in response to get that prepared, researched in a matter of hours? Yes, Your Honor, and a couple of points to that end. The first point is that the panel found, and testimony supports it, that there was not informed consent for a limitation of this representation. That's so, not the question I was asking, of course. Yes. I would expect the attorney to timely file, and the, the firm did, in fact, write the opposition within one day and file it, and that was on the 23rd. Counsel, do you yes. um, have any concerns that this would, if we um, agree with um, your position, that this would be a little bit of opening up of the floodgates and the number of um, reports that would, would be coming in? Because in my experiences in the district court, this is not an uncommon occurrence. Have you, have you thought about that at all and what the ramifications would be? I appreciate the point, and I did hear that theme emerge. I don't have that concern. Perhaps more complaints would come in, but the requirements of a violation don't change. Rule 3.4C works in tandem with a rule of a tribunal. So we would need to review the evidence, review the allegations, and if there wasn't evidence in each specific case to support a, a knowing disobedience of the rule, that would not result in discipline. Well, counsel, yeah. every court has timing requirements on the filing of briefs. We have timing requirements. When there's a case in this court, an order is issued on when the briefs have to be filed. Is it going to be the practice of your office going forward that if a respondent files his or her brief a day late, you're going to be commencing a dis another disciplinary proceeding for the knowing violation of Rule 3.4? No, Your Honor. Why the, not? The director. I mean, it just logically suggests that if you've got if you've got a respondent who files a brief a day or two late, 
you, you've got to get going because there's an apparent violation of Rule 3.4. A couple points, Your Honor. First, the director would not go out in search of violations for untimely filings. It's necessary that a complaint come to our attention and be filed with us or that- But counsel, the problem with that is that there's, unfortunately, there can be a breakdown in the attorney-client relationship. And what might have been okay at one point during that relationship then becomes not okay later um, and allows the individual then to take advantage of that breakdown in the relationship if the attorney doesn't do something exactly the way the client wants and then they can they can file this complaint almost as a, I'm gonna get you. And that, that troubles me a little bit, especially knowing how often this occurs in the district court. Yes, Your Honor. Rule 3.4C is not a rule intended to, to gotcha. It is, it's not intended to punish the attorney. It is to protect the public. It's to protect the administration of justice. And a violation is very fact specific. In this case, the facts that the attorney-client relationship was not limited in a way that provided informed consent. The attorney-client relationship was for representation in this matter. There was a pending dispositive motion. But your position is that he should have just basically wiped his hand and walked away. And so how is the client served and, and administration of justice served had he made a different choice on October 12th and just said, I'm, I'm not representing you anymore? Well, an attorney always has the option to withdraw subject to the limitations of 1.16. But the argument the director made the in, at the panel hearing, in the briefs, and in, even in the briefs before this court, are that his option here and the better course of action he should have taken was to withdraw from representation, was to drop his client and leave the client in the lurch. So how is that better serving the interest of justice? And Your Honor, I disagree with that representation of the director's position. I, as I read the record below, the director acknowledged that the option to withdraw was available, but there are limitations that were exceeded at certain points. The option to withdraw and comply with 1.16, probably available a month before the deadline to oppose a dispositive motion. Three weeks before, probably still then. Two weeks before, it's closer. So even then, under, under the director's position, so when he first sent the email saying, you haven't paid me, and you don't dispute that he actually, this client actually had an obligation to pay that retainer, right? I don't dispute the terms of the retainer or what the client agreed to, no. Right, and so he should have, so he did not, the client did not live up to the terms of the, of the initial, that's, that's undisputed. Correct. So what your position or the director's position is on, when he first sent the email saying you haven't paid your retainer so I'm dropping you, that's what should have happened here and that would have been the cleanest thing and, and then how does that serve the client? The, Your Honor, the director is not in a position to opine as to what the lawyer was would have best done. Our role is to analyze whether or not a violation of the rules of professional conduct occurred. And the respondent testified, uh, I believe it's around page 111 or, or perhaps even before that, that he had a choice. He was cognizant of his choice. He was cognizant of the deadline. And in Exhibit 10, he puts in writing to complain it that they still have to comply with the court deadlines. 
he has a knowledge of this obligation. And he has a knowledge on October 16th when the brief is due. He has a knowledge on October 23rd when it's filed that he's not in compliance. That's what the Rule 3.4C requires. Counsel, I'd like to go back to uh, Justice McCaig's question, and I guess Justice Anderson's question too about the floodgates here. Your response to my question about um, any time a brief is filed late, that it could lead to a disciplinary case was, well, we need a complainant. Well, actually, you don't need a complainant. complainant. Under Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board Rule 8A, the director can initiate an investigation simply based on reasonable belief to, to, that a violation has occurred. So when you, get, when you get an untimely brief, isn't that enough to start an investigation? No, Your Honor, and thank you, Justice Lillehog, for reminding me because I did not complete my response to your question. So yes, that is, you are correct. That's another opportunity to review conduct for a potential violation. However, every instance of an untimely filing would not be a prima facie demonstration of a violation because, again, Rule 3.4c requires a knowing disobedience. Well, well the attorney either knows the rules or has received an order from this court saying when the, the brief is due. The brief didn't come in on time. Isn't that a prima facie, isn't that prima facie evidence of a violation? Because the lawyer had to know what the deadline was. I believe the director would need to examine more facts and it's not, this case is not to create a broad sweeping investigation of every untimely brief. Here we have. You know, you just picked out this particular respondent to make that point. No, Your Honor. This respondent failed to protect his client's interest. His client testified, and this is at pages 27 through 28 of the transcript, that what failed he to protect his client's interest. He actually went ahead and did the did the brief and made the filing, even though he hadn't received the amount of money he'd been promised, and he, and it all worked out, didn't it? So what did the lawyer do to fail to protect the client's interests? Wasn't it the client that had the responsibility to, to hit that October 16 deadline? That was kind of a long question. Okay, I'll try to break it into pieces. I agree that both lawyer and client have responsibilities, but the lawyer is not responsible to the tribunal in this instance because the lawyer-client relationship exists. And there was a statement um, during Mr. Cooperstein's argument uh, and a question by Justice Anderson that there's not a shred of evidence that the district court was at all bothered. And I'd like to correct that because we have two references in the record on that point. The first is Exhibit 13, and that's the district court's order. And the district court explains that the respondent, so the movement of the summary judgment motion, actually withdrew the motion because of the initial filing not being 28 days before the hearing. He wanted to comply with the rules, and so he withdrew it. So I don't know that it is firmly in the record that the district court accepted it. So but did, more to did my he, point. Did the movement knowingly file a late pleading? I don't know. I don't have the evidence for whether there is a knowing disobedience. Well, don't, shouldn't your office investigate that? I don't believe we're going to, Your Honor. But the other point I wanted to make is that at page 49 of the transcript, complainant, the client, testified that the judge was upset that the brief was filed late. 
And so I, I don't know that I agree that the district court had no issue with this filing. It was filed did, three days did the, the hearing. If the judge was upset, don't you think it's reasonable that the district court judge would have either filed a complaint themselves or, um, or put in a letter or something in regards to the, the process, the investigation that was going on? Isn't that reasonable? I don't know if it's reasonable not, because I don't believe the district court judge had any involvement in the investigation um, or provided any statements in support of the admonition. So the, the, during the investigation and in the testimony, the only testimony that indicated that the district court was upset was from the complainant themselves. The complainant, and it's at page 49 of the transcript, correct. Uh, but what the district court decides to do with un an untimely filing is separate and distinct from what the director will do. And that's because the rules of civil procedure, or in this case, the Minnesota general rules of practice, are different than the Minnesota rules of professional conduct. They have different purposes. They serve different interests. They are separate, separately drawn. And district court is required to file a complaint if they feel that there has been um, engagement in unprofessional conduct. I mean, the district court is obligated to make that complaint. In some instances, but, but again, Mr. Cooperstein talked a little bit about Rule 8.3 and, and how this might not be a case where that's necessary or appropriate. In addition, the district court didn't have before it the evidence that the director has and that the panel had that there was a knowing disobedience. The district court didn't examine I'm, I'm really confused about this knowing disobedience. Is knowing disobedience knowing that you have to file it nine days in advance, or is there other, some other line you're drawing? Is your line that it was knowing disobedience here because there was a dispute over whether the lawyer had been paid? No, and I mean, here, so how is it not annoying disobedience if the if according to you the rule says nine days, and then you file it eight days later? What what would distinguish all of those cases from the case here? You keep saying, well, we'd have to look at the facts, but I, I don't understand what line you're drawing. I can illustrate an example, Your Honor. In this case, if the facts were different, where complainant and respondent had effectively limited the representation and there was informed consent, and that was supported, then the attorney's obligation to follow the client's directive about how to achieve the goals of representation would not create but a violation of the But in most cases, there's not even a dispute about whether you're gonna limit the representation or not. In most cases, sure. you're just representing the client. And so, what's the difference between, I mean, is it, is it your position that every time you file a brief, shorter in a response brief in this case shorter than nine days there is a violation of rule 3.4 c and if not where do we where do we draw that line because the rule according to you and we can talk about that in a little bit but is clear that nine days is nine days mm -hmm. and so a lawyer has would have would know that so where's the line beside that i think it's embodied in the the facts and the evidence of a specific case and you know, certainly we are held to a standard of clear and convincing evidence. So to your question, if a brief is three hours late, technically it's not compliant, you know, if 
if you follow the rule that it has to be in by 5 p.m. to be considered that day, and it's three days beyond that, or three hours beyond that. Technically, that would not be on time. However, that's not all we consider. You would also need to consider whether the attorney was trying to comply, other facts within the context of what was happening. And here, the evidence is very strong. The respondent unequivocally testified that yeah, there's no question. Yeah, but before no you get back into the evidence of this case, let's say I'm working on a brief. I'm a lawyer working on a brief. I know the deadline is 5 o'clock. Mm -hmm. It's got to be filed by then. And um, then a couple hours before that deadline, I suddenly realize I've got, a, I've got a better argument, and I've got to take some time to research it, and I make the knowing decision. I'm not going to hit the 5, de 5 o'clock deadline, but I think if I file by 8 o'clock in the morning, probably the judge will overlook the violation of the rule. Have I just committed ethical, an ethical uh, misconduct? I, I, know I'm, I know I'm violating the deadline. In that case, you, you have knowingly disobeyed the rule. Um, and so if the simply, client doesn't like the result later on and complains that I, I filed uh, 12 hours late, that would warrant a private admonition? I don't know that those facts would warrant it. But filing in the absence of some motion to seek relief, it, that's not the only option. There's Rule 115.07, yes, 07, that permits uh, the court to modify the timeline. So uh, an untimely filing. Sure, I could have done something different. I'm just asking you to assume I, I make it 12 hours late. Why, why not a private admonition based on your theory of this case? Perhaps that would be a private admonition in addition. I, but I can't say for certain. I haven't had the opportunity to discuss that particular scenario with the director. So I can only analyze it as best I can under the, the rule that, as you've articulated, it sounds like a knowing disobeyance. What do you make of the fact that in Rule 115.01, it says, you know, the, these rules are to provide adequate opportunity to prepare, but the court may modify the time limits? And then in Rule 115.06, it obviously allows other types of, you know, allows briefs to come in, uh, but maybe you can sanction it under different rules. And 115.07 clearly allows modification of the rule. Didn't the district court, by accepting this brief, essentially modify the default rule? Is there really a violation of 115 here? Or, I mean, because it seems like the way the rule is set up is that one, the nine days is like a default rule. But the rule in many, many places seems to think this is really up to the district court. I mean, this kind of goes to your argument about whether you should defer to the district court or not. But how do you deal with all those references to modification and letting the district court mm -hmm. kind of deal with 115? Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. The fact that later in time, a district court can decide to relax the timelines or accept an untimely filing or modify it does not abrogate the existence of 115.03b. It doesn't abrogate the fact that at the time uh, that the deadline came and went, that the attorney had an obligation to timely file. And so those two things can exist concurrently. Those rules can both exist. The but ability... didn't the district court, by accepting this, really modify the time rules in this case? I mean, they, they, 
he he took the brief. The court took. I'm I'm sorry. I don't know remember who the judge was, but the court took the brief. If the district court, if we if we accept that the district court allowed this brief, and and certainly there's evidence to support that. There's evidence to support the contrary. Then no, I, the district court is considering the substantive issues before it. It's considering a dispositive motion, which was eventually withdrawn and stricken. But that decision does not restrict the director from examining the facts within the context of the rules of professional conduct. But you'd agree that there has to be a violation of actually a violation of 115. And if we disagree with you and your interpretation of one, what 115 means, then Rule 3.4 wouldn't apply. This court has the ability to interpret rules, and so that would apply to Rule 115.03b. Counsel, how does it protect the public to discipline a lawyer who files a late brief that the judge accepts? In this instance, we had an attorney who had a client who expected that if settlement negotiations failed, that they would revisit this idea of opposing the motion. And what's lacking in the record is any discussion of negotiations failed, here's when the brief is due, here's what I propose. There's no opportunity for the, the client to to be protected, and the client wanted to oppose the motion. Did the client expect that even if the money wasn't paid, the lawyer would file the opposition? I don't know that that answer is in the record. I don't believe that specific question was asked. Under the retainer agreement, did the lawyer have an obligation to uh, file the opposition notwithstanding lack of payment by the client? Yes, Your Honor, because there was an engagement. Although the attorney did not file a certificate of representation before the brief came due, the attorney had gotten an, a moved hearing date, and opposing counsel knew that So there was once the lawyer got the hearing date moved, then the lawyer was obliged to proceed regardless of whether the lawyer got the retainer? Yes, because the lawyer has the possibility to withdraw provided it's in compliance with 116D. You know, another point I'd like Counsel, to... Counsel, your red light's on, so if you could sum up, please. Yes, Your Honor. Um, I respectfully request that the court affirm the admonition under Rule 3.4c. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Cooperstein, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. All right, we're good. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.